Good morning. Uh, my name is Derek Sogstead, and our scripture reading comes out of the book of John, chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and uh, the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus was, had been laying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't ascended yet to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went, or found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord, and she gave him his message. Well, if anyone has kids or grandkids in this room, I would strongly encourage them to go to Bookworm Gardens in Sheboygan. Anyone in here ever been to Bookworm Gardens? Good. Okay, good. It actually comes in at number four on, on TripAdvisor on Wisconsin's list of gardens. So number four, it's a tremendous attraction. It's beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, lots of things for the kids to do. And it's called Bookworm Gardens because... It's based off of the theme of children's books. Like, for instance, there's the magic school bus that kids can play in, and for that, and then there's um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. This is the sale of the cheese, you know, bread boats that sailed away from the, the town that was doomed because the food got so big. There's Winnie the Pooh that you can play in. There's just tons and tons of attractions. One of the favorites, at least for our family, is Harry the Dirty Dog, um, where you can actually scrub Harry with water. So they, they had to get a new one, yes, because the one got scrubbed right off. The paint got <laughs> scrubbed right off. Um, but uh, that's always a favorite. We could spend the whole time just at Harry, I think. And then there's also the timeless children's classic of Whistling Straits Golf Course. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. That's not a, that's not a children's book. But I suppose when Kohler Company gives you a bunch of money to put an attraction in your garden, you, that's not the type of thing you say no to. Regardless, it's a very beautiful place, and they even have little libraries scattered throughout the garden so that you can actually read children's books to your kids in the beauty of the garden. And it's become a popular place. It's so beautiful for photography and, and picture shoots, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous place to go. I highly recommend Bookworm Gardens. And I bring up Bookworm Gardens because we're talking about a garden today. We're talking about a gardener today, and we're talking about the most beautiful person doing the most beautiful thing in the most beautiful place of a garden. And we've been walking through this series called Holy Week Timeline, where we're preaching through the events of Holy Week. And the first thing, by way of review, the week opens with Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Then on Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and clears out the money changers and all the commerce there as a prophetic act. On Tuesday, Jesus teaches in the temple, and then later he goes out to teach on the Mount of Olives. 
The gospel writers don't specifically assign any events to Wednesday. However, some people believe that on Wednesday, Judas went to the religious leaders and said, how much money will you give me if I betray Jesus to you? Some people believe that happened on Wednesday. But the gospel writers don't tell us specifically what day that happened on. On Thursday, Jesus eats his last supper, last supper with his disciples, and then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray to his Father in his final hours. And then it's in the wee early hours on Friday morning that Jesus is arrested, betrayed, tried, and crucified. And then on Saturday, his body lies in the tomb. Which brings us to Sunday morning. And before dawn on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb of Jesus with the intention of tending to the body. And Mary Magdalene is from Magdala, which is a town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Mary followed Jesus after Jesus cast seven demons out of her, and then she became a disciple of Jesus. So she goes to the tomb, wanting to tend to the body. And let's pick up our scripture reading in John 20, 13 to 14. Mary turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me, where have you put him? And I will go and get him. So Mary comes to the tomb. She finds the tomb empty to her surprise, looks in, sees two angels who tell her he's not here. And she begins to cry because she doesn't know where her Savior and Lord is. And while she's crying, Jesus approaches her, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Now, I told you as a kid that I used to fight the boredom of the sermon by reading the Bible. And the Lord actually used that Bible reading to fight the boring sermon to kindle a love of God's Word. And one of my favorite things to read as a kid while I was fighting boredom during the sermon was the Passion Narratives. And I I knew that, you know, all four Gospels give a different camera angle on Jesus' Passion. And so I love to read the Passion Narrative from the four different camera angles. It was just so fascinating. And I remember reading John's account, and John is the only gospel writer who gives us this this moment with Mary thinking Jesus is the gardener. And I remember thinking, how in the world? I mean, you're looking for Jesus. He appears to you, and you think he's the gardener? Like, what are you, stupid? You know, like, how do you miss this? And I remember thinking as a kid, it's just like, how does this happen? You know, was she like spiritually blinded? Was she just dumb? Was she have short, did she have short-term memory loss like Dory on Finding Nemo? You know, it's just like, was, was Jesus wearing overalls instead of the traditional white robe that we think of him? Like, ah, I'm the gardener, you know? I mean, it's just, how in the world does she miss this? He's the one you're looking for. And you think he's, and of all people, uh, must be the gardener. You know, it's like, what is going on? And those are all the wrong questions, all right? The question is not, how could Mary be so stupid to miss that Jesus is Jesus and not the gardener? That's the wrong question. The right question, rather, is why would the gospel writer John include this detail in his resurrection account? Why is John telling us this? Why is he including us in this? And the answer is that he is connecting us to a network of biblical imagery that begins on the first pages of the Bible. John is including this detail because he is plugging us in to a schematic of biblical pictures, imagery, and metaphor that literally begins in the beginning of the Bible. That's 2 verse 8. Then the Lord God planted a garden 
in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. And so God, at the beginning, creates a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he places Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden, biblically, functions as the ideal. Eden is everything as it ought to be. Eden is perfection. Eden is creation as God intended. Eden is, this is the way it ought to be. Eden is the ideal. And God even says, look at Genesis 131a, then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. So God looks at Eden and he says, that's very good. This is the way it ought to be. And so Eden, for us, functions as very good. This is the way it ought to be. Eden is perfection, as God intended. And not only does God create Eden the way it was intended, but he gives Adam a job. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So he gives Adam the job of gardening the perfect garden. God creates a garden, everything as intended, and then he gives Adam the job of being the gardener. Well, we know that Adam does not fulfill his role. We know that the first gardener fails. Adam and Eve usurp the role of God. They try to become God. They eat from the forbidden fruit. They rebel. They sin. And in doing so, they condemn creation to death. They are sentenced to toil and hard work under the curse of sin. And as another byproduct, they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. But one of the things that we celebrate over and over again is that God didn't let Genesis 3 stand. God did not let the fall be the final word over his creation. And so he sends a rescuer in the form of his son, Jesus. Now, the mission of Jesus, among many things, is to restore creation to the way it ought to be. But this restoration act on behalf of Jesus is very costly. Because it costs the life of God's own son. Jesus comes to reverse the curse. He comes to restore creation. He comes to undo what Adam did. But it will come at the cost of God's own son. And so we find Jesus agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his definitive restoration event. The night before he goes to the cross. The night before the price is paid we find him pleading with his father that his father might take the cup from him and that there might be another way. He pleads so fervently and he's under so much duress and anguish that he sweats blood, sweats blood because he's so anguished at this price that must be paid to restore creation. So we have the Garden of Eden, which is perfect exactly as God intended. And then we have the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a place of anguish a place of pain, a place of duress, a place of betrayal, a place of arrest. And once Jesus is taken into custody in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that he will not leave the custody of the officials until he's dead. That's when he will leave the custody. So do you see the contrast? We have Eden, which is perfection, everything as God intended, but we have Gethsemane, which is the anti-garden, the place of death, the place of betrayal, the place of arrest, the place of sin, the place of duress. And it's in the anti-garden that Jesus is betrayed by Judas, taken into custody, tried, and then nailed to a cross. And he's nailed to a cross 
between two criminals. One criminal believes Jesus is indeed the Messiah. One criminal believes the sign above his head. But another criminal joins the scoffers and the mockers. He says, hey, save yourself if you really are the Messiah. But look at what Jesus says to the criminal who believes. Look at Luke 23, verses 42 to 43. This is the criminal who believed. Then Jesus, or then he said, this is the criminal who believed, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So he tells the thief who believes, once we kick it here, you're going to be with me in paradise, man. Now that word paradise, now follow me. I know sometimes this stuff, it's like, it's like a turnoff. I used to do that. This was like a trigger for me when I was in your shoes. They're like, as soon as words come up, it's like, boom, my brain shuts down. Resist, resist, okay? Because it's fascinating. It's going to blow your mind, okay? Paradise in Greek, paradisos. And in the sense that Jesus is using it here, the range of meaning is heaven, a park, and a garden. Garden, paradise. Jesus is saying, you will be with me in the paradise of heaven, in the garden paradise of heaven. You will be with me today. Well, Jesus dies, and Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, ask the Roman officials for Jesus' body. Picking it up in John 19, verse 38 to 42. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, are both well-connected to the religious authorities. So they're taking a risk by asking the Romans, hey, can we have Jesus' body? Because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Joseph of Arimathea lays Jesus in a tomb that's never been used before, and we're told the tomb is near a garden. Now, last week, I told you that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is the most likely candidate for the location of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. And most historians and most archaeologists all agree that's the place that Jesus died and was entombed. But there's a contender. There's a contender. In 1883, British General Charles Gordon was surveying the Holy Land with his Bible, trying to map out the locations of the events of Jesus' passion. And in his search, he came across a cliff that had what looked like the shape of a skull in the cliff. And we know from Luke that Jesus was crucified in the place of the skull. And so this general posited this new location as a potential site for Jesus' death. And there was a woman, an author, by the name of Wendy Murray, who visited the Garden Tomb location back in 1997 as part of her tour of the Holy Land. And it's amazing because in the article, she contrasts her experience at Church of the Holy Sepulchre with her experience at the Garden Tomb location. 
And just listen to a few things that she says about her visit to the garden tomb location. Wendy Murray says in the article from Christianity Today, our guide led us to a lookout point and directed our gaze toward a rugged cliff overlooking a bus station some 200 yards before us. He explained how from a distance, the erosion of the limestone created the effect of features looking like a human skull. If you look carefully, you can see what could be the eye sockets. Zach, could you go to that next slide? Yeah, there, perfect. We turned and walked, following our guide as he led us away from the lookout point. Suddenly, we found ourselves almost in Narnia, stepping into a lush green woodland, dripping with vines, padded with underbrush, and shaded by trees with leaves the size of baseball mitts. We were in a garden, not a stone's throw away from the dusty, dry soil of Skull Hill. He then led us into a welcoming open courtyard where pink geraniums hung from plots on ledges and, and where a doorway had been cut into the face of a cliff. A feeling of expectation overtook me as I stood at a distance looking at the entrance to the tomb. I wondered if this was how Mary felt when she approached it and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. A great mystery, terrible or wonderful, awaited her behind that door. Hearing the birds in the trees, following the path to the tomb, seeing the entrance, all of these conspired to create a vision for me. And I saw the damaged body of someone I loved being cleaned and wrapped and carried up these hills by two old men, laid to rest and swallowed up into darkness before the sun went down. It made me wish that I could thank Joseph for his trouble in tending to the indelicate details of burying his dead secret friend. But for all of Joseph's efforts... The bigger story is, as our guide put it, if Jesus was here, he wasn't here for very long. And with that, our guide thanked us for coming and then left. That's the garden tomb location in Jerusalem. And so we're back to our scripture reading with Mary crying because she doesn't know where her Lord is and mistaking Jesus for the gardener. And I like this illustration because it, if you can kind of see, there's flowers behind Jesus, and it gives us the picture of the garden tomb location. Let's pick it up in John 20, 14 to 16. Mary turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me, where have you put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. John is connecting us to a network of biblical imagery that splashed across the pages of the Bible. Because the Bible opens with Eden, God's perfection. But the first gardener failed. We brought sin into the world. And so God sends the second gardener, his rescuer son, who goes through the anguish and the toil of the Garden of Gethsemane to the triumph of the resurrection and the open garden tomb. He restores us to Eden through the anguish and the difficulty and the death and the sin and the betrayal of the Garden of Gethsemane to the triumph of the open garden tomb tomb the first gardener Adam failed but the second gardener Jesus succeeds 
And Paul says as much in Romans 5.15. Romans 5, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, the first gardener, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, the second gardener, overflow to the many? I like what Isaac Ambrose in his book from the 1800s, Looking Unto Jesus, says. Here's what Isaac Ambrose says. As Adam, in the state of grace and innocency, was placed in a garden, and the first office allocated to him was to be a gardener, so Jesus Christ appeared first in a garden and presents himself in a gardener's likeness. And as that first gardener was the parent of sin, the ruin of mankind, and the author of death, so is this gardener the ransom for our sin, the raiser of our ruins, and the resister or the restorer of our life. Adam, the first gardener, fails, but Jesus, the second gardener, succeeds. Jesus' mission is to restore Eden. And by going through the anguish of Gethsemane and the triumph of the open tomb, he restores us to the new Eden. That the story doesn't end with the open garden tomb, but there is another garden. That there is the garden of the city of New Jerusalem, the garden paradise that he promised to the thief on the cross for those who believe that the second gardener is indeed the Messiah. Genesis 2.10 describes the Garden of Eden. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. But now, look at the description of the garden city of New Jerusalem. Look at the description of heaven in Revelation 22.1. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So you got a river in Eden, and you got a river in New Eden, in heaven. And you have a tree of life in Eden. And you got a tree of life in New Eden, in heaven. Look at the second verse in Revelation 22. It flowed, the river now, flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month for medicine to heal the nations. And in Eden, you have the first gardener, Adam, who failed and brought sin into the world. But in the new Eden, in heaven, in the garden paradise of the new Jerusalem, you have the second gardener who has removed the curse. Look at verse 3 of Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. Why? For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. This is the hope that comes from the second gardener, that God created Eden, that everything was as God intended, but that we brought sin into the world, but that God sends the second gardener who goes through the anguish of Gethsemane and is betrayed and arrested and tried and put to death but then rises to the eternal hope of the open garden tomb. That is the hope that we celebrate today, that we worship the second gardener who goes through the anguish of Gethsemane to the triumph of the open garden tomb so that we can someday be with him in Eden restored. So like Mary today, would you suppose him to be the gardener?